good morning. Hopefully with your copy of God's Word still turned to Luke chapter 8. Very in, uh, intriguing story here in this particular text. It's a story some of us may be familiar with. It's a, it's, it's a very odd to our ears culturally, um, particularly because of the interaction so openly with the demonic and the invisible and the spiritual, not something that we have regular exposure to where we are. Um, not that there's not a presence of demonic oppression that occurs. It just occurs in a very different sort of way in our cultural context. And so this is a, an odd story for a lot of reasons. Um, but in this case and in this story, location is important. Where this event takes place is incredibly meaningful. In verse 26, it said that they were sailing, you know, they, Jesus calmed the sea and they finally made it to where they were going and they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite of Galilee. And what we know historically about the, the Gerasene region is that it was a Gentile region. It's where a conglomerate of Gentile people lived in this area. Uh, that's made clearer uh, later on, uh, not only by the name of the region itself, very much a Gentile name uh, based off of a Gentile group of people, but it's also made clear to us by the occupation that the people have. Uh, the Jewish people would not have been um, swine herders. They would not have taken care of pigs. A pig is listed, uh, uh, and we're all very thankful for the opening up of all animals made clean in the book of Acts because of this. But in the Old Testament law, pigs are declared an unclean animal that you're not supposed to consume or touch or, or domesticate and raise. And we say, hallelujah, praise the Lord for everybody who had bacon this morning for breakfast, that that is no longer the case because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ not only saves you from your sin, but allows you to have a hearty and tasty breakfast. And so... Um, and so, but it's clear based on the cultural context of what has been going on here that the region is named after a group of Gentile people and the occupation that they have is an occupation that Jewish people would not have had at this time. They would not have been tending to a herd of swine. They wouldn't have done that. It would have been an unclean thing for them. And so this is, this is incredibly important to the story and the point that Luke is trying to make. Jesus's kingdom, and Luke has been making this point in various ways over and over again through the first eight chapters. And he will continue to make this point through the rest of his gospel. That Jesus's kingdom and his gospel were for all kinds of people. It was not just for national Hebrews. It was also for them. Let's, not, let's be careful that we don't become exclusionary the other way. It was also for them. But it was not only for them. And if you read the Old Testament carefully enough, you will see it's fairly veiled and it's very shadowy. But you will see that that has always been the case with the message of the kingdom of God. It has never exclusively been for any one nation state. Never has been. Never has been. In fact, the establishment of the nation state that we know as Israel came from the founding of their great first father, Abraham, who was himself a Gentile moon worshiping pagan before God called him out and made him into a great nation. He was part of a different people group. He said, I'm going to make a people out of you like something new, something unique. 
When you have the story of the Exodus, many Egyptians, it says in the text, left with them and were part of their traveling band. When you have the going into the promised land, you have uh, the prostitute Rahab there who becomes part of the lineage of Jesus himself. She was not a part of the original nation of Israel. We can walk through text after text after text in the Old Testament, pointing and shadowing type to the reality of what Luke is saying here, that the kingdom and the gospel are for all kinds of people. Now, I will tell you, as um, Amanda and I were watching part of uh, the Germany and Sweden World Cup game the other day, and there was no c- clear evidence on the jerseys which team the people were playing on. And she said, well, which one's which? And I said, if I had to guess... The ones that are more blonde are the Swedish ones. Like that was the identity. And we ended up being correct about that. And so I have to say as someone who's probably from that Norse background in my heritage somewhere. I'm really glad that it's true that the kingdom and the gospel are for all kinds of people and not just national Hebrews. Because my lineage is going to get you about as far away from national Hebrew as you possibly can get. It just is. It just is. Yet the gospel is for people like me. People like Luke, who's writing this gospel to us, who never met Jesus himself, only was aware of Jesus from the stories told to him by other people who had met Jesus, who was indeed a Gentile. That's the beauty of what we have here. Luke is just like us, someone who never met Jesus, never saw Jesus, never encountered Jesus, never had a conversation with Jesus, who wasn't from the household of the faith of Abraham. He's receiving all of this as an outsider. And yet by the Holy Spirit, he's writing to us a story about Jesus going into a Gentile region and doing a great work among the Gentile people. This is very important to the story. And so I want us to see this interaction that Jesus has with this man possessed by these demons. In verses 27 through 33, let's take a look at the man's condition. What had the demon done to him? Demons, plural, actually. What had they done to him? It said that there were many days of him living outside, meaning he was in the desert, he was in the wilderness, he was not among those who were civilized. He was not living in a household. He was not holding down a job. He was out and out of control. It says that he was unclothed for most of these days, running around um, quite inappropriately. said that he had many days of unusual strength and behavior. They would try to bind him. They would try to contain him. They would try to keep him from hurting himself and other people. He would break apart their chains. He would break out of whatever imprisonment they put him in. And he would go back to the ways that he had been behaving. Now, how long this went on, we don't know. It just says many days. It was like this for a very long period of time. And when Jesus comes into this region, notice, this is really important. Jesus comes into this region where this man is. And in verse 28, it says, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him and said in a loud voice. Notice Jesus doesn't call the demoniac to him. The man possessed by all these demons sees Jesus and goes to Jesus. Driven by the demons to do so. 
And he says, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, I beg you, do not torment me. Now, we're going to analyze his statement in just a second. But I, I want you to note in Luke's gospel. Up to this point. This is important for us to, to come to the grips with. In Luke's gospel up to this point. There's only been one other time where we've had theology this good. And it was by an angelic being at the announcement of the birth of Jesus. You're going to be with child and you will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from his sin. And he will be of the most high God. Like there's another spiritual being in Luke, a couple of spiritual beings, actually, who basically make this same statement. This is who is going to be. Now, John, as the forerunner, full of the Holy Spirit from birth, does make a public announcement that's similar to this. But we also see later that John has some pretty significant doubts about if what he's been saying is true. And actually questions it from prison. The only two certain statements that we have up to this point about who Jesus actually is come from spiritual beings. One, an angel. The other, a fallen angel. Friends... As an aside, and this is a sermon for another day, but I just want to insert this for free. You can have remarkably spot on theology and still be condemned. Because the best theology that we have in Luke's gospel so far is a tie between an angel and a demon. It's pretty remarkable, actually. So much so that if we really break down the conversation between Jesus and this demon, these demons, plural. Notice, let's, let's, let's look at the words that he has to Christ. The first thing he asks, what business do we have with each other? And the longer spiritual answer is none. If we follow the kind of historical rendering of the Ezekiel and the Isaiah passages and the fall of uh, and the revelation passage that kind of feeds into the history of that and the fall of a certain number of angelic beings with Satan prior to the creation of mankind. If that's how we take that, I know there's a lot of people who don't, but if that's how we take that, Jesus' answer to it is we don't have any business together. You had a thing and you decided to follow someone else besides the Most High God. And so now you don't have a thing anymore. The only thing between us now is your impending judgment. That's all we've got. We really don't have any other business with each other besides that. But he knew that that's how he should approach Jesus. What business do we have with each other? In other passages and other texts, the similar interaction occurs where the demons even ask, have you come to torment us before our time? He asked something similar to this toward the end. Notice who he calls him. He calls him by his given birth name, Jesus, Yeshua, Joshua in other English translations, meaning the Lord saves. The name given to him by the Father through the angelic being at the start of this gospel. The other angelic being, you will call his name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. And then he gives a great designator, not just the human reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, but also the divine reality that he is the son of the most high God. This is like Nicene Creed incarnational statements here. 
It's like, hey, guys at Nicaea, where did you get your language that you use to write this creed? It's amazing. We borrowed it from a demon. Because he had some really good theology about who Jesus was. And then he begs Jesus not to torment him. He knew what was coming if he interacted with Jesus Christ. He knows what the deal is. He knows. In fact, as you push through down to verse 31, the the demons were imploring Jesus not to command them to go into the abyss. The scriptural language we have for the abyss is the final place of condemnation. This demon not only knew who Jesus was, understood who Jesus was, had great incarnational theology, but he also had great eschatology in relation to his own end point. You're going to throw me in the abyss one day. Like, this is what's going to happen to me. And so Jesus asks this demon, collection of demons, what is your name? He said, we, my name is Legion. Legion is the word used to describe a conglomeration of upwards of 6,000 Roman soldiers at one time. We're not sure exactly how many demons are in this guy, but it was enough that they called themselves a legion. Which, for this culture, is 6,000 soldiers. And so the demons make a request of Jesus. They said, don't destroy us now. Don't send us to the abyss now. And they make this request to Jesus. Send us into that herd of swine. And Jesus says, go ahead, go into them. And when they go into that herd of swine... These demons run these animals off the side of a cliff into a lake. The entire herd is lost and they all drown. That's that's crazy. Like, I'm trying to visualize what this must have looked like. I'm a big fan of like those Planet Earth series and the docudramas on the thing about the animals all over the world and stuff. And, And I've watched one one time on Great Migrations. And they had the one in Africa where the wildebeest go on the move. And it's just, you know, from almost from space, you can see the dust cloud that they're creating as they're going across the desert regions. I, I, I would suspect it probably looks something kind of like this. Just all of a sudden, these animals are just standing there and they're eating, they're minding their own business, and they're just having a normal day. And then suddenly, bam, they hit, they bolt, they run, and they start flying off the side of a cliff. You know, the old phrase, when pigs fly, this was there right here. They were gone. Now, as a Memphian, I'm really sad about the loss of, you know, shoulder and pork loin. But, but, you know, whatever. This is an incredible thing. Now, it's not without recognition that under Jewish law and custom, the demons are taken out of an image bearer. This man's a Gentile, but he's an image bearer. The demons are removed from an image bearer and placed in a thing listed under the law as unclean. Let's not miss that. Hey, I'll tell you what, you need to come out of him. Where can we go? Could you not destroy us right now? I won't destroy you right now. How about you send us into the swine? You know what? You don't belong in an image bearer. Go get in the unclean animal. That's a better place for you. And he lets them go and do that. And they go and destroy these animals in the sea. Crazy story. 
Friends, it should be reminiscent as the title of the sermon implies from James 2.19. You believe in God, you do well. For the demons also believe. And the NASB says shudder. The old King James says and they tremble. The demons even tremble at the thought of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's only one entity in the spiritual realm that's still confused about this. And it's Satan himself. When it talks about him being the father of lies... The lies aren't so much to us as they are to himself. I will ascend to the throne of the most high God. No, you won't. And you might deceive people along the way thinking that they'll join you on that quest. But it won't ever happen. Apparently, this demon had gained enough insight to know this isn't going to happen. And I'm in the presence of the living God. And it's not going to go well for me. Now, I want to make note of something that happens next. Sometimes the worst circumstances create the best platforms for the gospel. Let's get what just happened here from a pragmatic point of view. And most of you know me, know that I'm not all about pragmatism, like what works. But let's, let's go pragmatic and practical just for a second. Jesus goes into this Gentile region, to our knowledge, the first full-out Gentile region he's been to in the Gospel of Luke. He's mostly been working among Jewish people at this, to this point. And so his, his, his kingdom message hasn't really been preached in a region like this yet. So this is kind of like a first-time exposure for a lot of these folks to this whole Messiah Jesus thing. And he goes into this region and there's this demoniac overwhelmed by all of these demons, just wreaking havoc where he lives, making it difficult for the people who live in that region. So Jesus has an interaction with this demoniac and he casts the demons out and he allows them to go into the swine, which is apparently the major source of economic uh, advantage and in income that these people have. They're raising these pigs for their money and their well-being. And Jesus has these demons drive the swine into the sea and kills the entire herd. Their stock market just crashed. I hope they didn't have all of their eggs in that one basket. Hey, we're banking on pigs and all the pigs just died. And it says that The herdsmen of these pigs ran into the town to tell the people what just happened. Because it's probably going to adversely affect the people in town. The butcher's not going to have anything to cut up. The tradesmen aren't going to have any animals to carry off. Like, you can start walking through the people who are going to use the skins of the animals to create clothing and packaging and bags. Aren't going to be able to do that because the animals are not going. This is going to impact industry-wide in this region. And the herdsmen are going to tell them, dude, this crazy thing just happened and killed all the pigs. The guy that was the demoniac is better and all the pigs are dead. And this Jesus dude is responsible for this. And so the people came to see Jesus, to find out, see with their own eyes what had happened. In verse 37, all the people of the country of the Gerizines and the surrounding district asked him to leave. Why? For they were gripped 
with fear. Now, we've got in the short course of about 20 verses, last time and this time, three different unique interactions with Jesus. The first one we saw last time, Jesus calmed the storm on the sea and the disciples, it says, were what were amazed and terrified. Why? What kind of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? And they were, they were afraid. They were afraid of Jesus. And then Jesus comes into the region of the Gerasenes and he comes up against this demoniac who has who knows how many demons living inside of him. And the demoniac comes to Jesus and screams out in fear. What business do we have with each other? Son of the most high God, have you come to torment us? Do not cast us into the abyss. And so the demon is struck by fear in the presence of Jesus. And then you have the townspeople when they hear the story and they see the dead pigs floating in the water and they tell Jesus, we don't want you here anymore. Why? Because they are afraid. Of what they've seen. You have three different groups of people. Well informed. Well instructed. Followers of Jesus. Who are of the Jewish nation. A demoniac. And a group of Gentile people. Who have no idea what's going on. And their response in every case. Was fear. This Jesus dude is terrifying. And I asked the question again. That I asked last week. Is that a normal response for us. When we think about Jesus. It might should be. Because he is the son of the living God. One day he will speak and all of the mountains will flee away, it says in the Revelation. He will come again one time, not as the babe in the manger or the suffering servant, but as the conquering king. And he will have the sword, the word of God, come out of his mouth, it says, and he will slay all of his enemies. He will make his enemies a... His, their neck, his footstool is what the scripture teaches. Like he's, he's going to put them under his foot. He will indeed crush the head of the serpent. That's what he will do. And the people were gripped with fear. It's the same response that the disciples had, the same response that the demoniac had. It's the response of these people. And the man who had been healed man who had been healed, the demoniac asked Jesus to let him come. Please let me come with you. Now, the, the hopeful person that's slowly emerging in me over all these years that wants to think the best and see the good and stuff would like to say that he was so overwhelmed by this great thing that Jesus had done for him that he just wanted to go and be wherever Jesus was. And that really may be the case. The severe skeptic and cynic in me reads this story and goes, this dude has got to get out of this town because he's the reason why they don't have any money anymore. Everyone in town has got to close shop because this dude's demons went into their pigs and killed their entire industry. He's going to be, he was already the most hated dude in town because he was this crazy person doing all this wild stuff. Now he's really hated because now that he's healed and in his right mind, everybody's broke. Nobody has a job. And it's his fault. If they'd have just left you running around like a crazy person in the wilderness, you really weren't causing too many problems and we could still eat. Now, maybe that's not the case. Maybe I'm being too cynical. I'm sure somebody will inform me of that and it will help me to grow and become more like Jesus. But it might actually be a little of both. 
It might be, I'm so glad you did this for me and there's nothing left for me here. Because those demons that were in me made sure that there's nothing left for anybody here. But what does Jesus tell him to do? And this is a remarkable thing that Jesus tells him to do. Jesus sent him back to his own house. Verse 39, return to your house. And then commands him to share this good news with those in his area. Return to your house and describe the great things that God has done for you. So this guy went away, it says, proclaiming throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. He proclaimed the work of Jesus to the entire region. And I want you to notice that Jesus did not command him to have secrecy like he did with many of his Jewish-oriented miracles. When we walk through the rest of the gospel and Jesus does some great miracle in a Jewish region, usually he commands that person, be quiet and don't tell anybody that this happened to you. Maybe go make an offering for the sacrifice in the temple like you're supposed to, but you don't need to tell a whole bunch of people about what happened to you. Notice what happens as Jesus' popularity increases in Jewish-dominated regions. They want to forcibly try to make him king before the time. They try to want to, they try to want to take the kingdom of God into their own hands and use it as an instrument against their political enemies, which is not the purpose of Jesus having come. Let's remember this now that they're starting to do presidential debates on TV. If you can't say amen, say ouch. There are practical, real applications of what Jesus did back in the day for our modern context. We are not supposed to grab a hold of the kingdom of God and the gospel and use it as an instrument to accomplish our political gains. We're just not supposed to do that. The Jewish people weren't supposed to do that. American people aren't supposed to do that. So they would try to manipulate the work of the kingdom that Jesus had brought to them so that they could get rid of those pesky Romans. And so Jesus would tell people constantly, please don't tell anybody that this happened to you. Because I'm, I'm already swamped. I don't need extra people coming along and trying to get crazy with this kingdom business. But guess what the Gentiles weren't looking for? They weren't looking for a Jewish Messiah to deliver them from the Romans. Most of them were the Romans. This was not on their radar. This is all brand new to them. And so what does Jesus gladly tell this Gentile man that has, has had this miracle happen in his life? I want you to go tell as many of your Gentile brothers and sisters about this thing as you possibly can. Why? Because they didn't have the advantages. What does Paul say in Romans? What were the advantages of the nation of Israel? They had the scripture and they had the prophets and they had the temple and they had the sacrifice and they had the patriarchs and they had the covenant of David. They had all the advantages to know that God was going to do what he's doing in Jesus. What does he say about the Gentiles in different New Testament letters? They were far off without hope of God in the world. They were on the outside And God through Christ had to bring them in. And how do you bring people in who don't know? You have someone who has met the living Christ. Tell them this is who the living Christ is. This is what he has done. This is what he can do for you. 
Go and tell everybody what has happened to you. And do you know what he did? He stayed and told everybody what Jesus did for him. Friends, I would contend that the times and the places where Jesus engages Gentile people, like he does, this is not the only place, he does it in several other places as well, is the platform, the foundational platform for the quick ingathering of Gentiles that occurs in the book of Acts. It happens really quickly with very little problem, very little resistance. Why? Because Jesus had already laid a foundation for the Gentiles to be welcomed in. How? By doing stuff like this and telling them, tell everybody about it. Now, as we close, I want to touch one more time on the demoniac and the conversation that the demon has with Jesus. And this is terrifying to me because James reiterates this in in James chapter 2, verse 19. The demoniac knew who Jesus was. And not in a surface level, in a deep, rich, theological way. That he was the God-man. The one who has come into the world to save his people from their sins. The one who is the son of the most high God. The one who holds life and death, judgment and acceptance in his very hand by his own great power. The one who ultimately would bring about the fulfillment of all things, which would include his own judgment as demons, their own judgment. And yet, with all of that right information... This demon still stood condemned. That's terrifying to me. It should be to you too. The Pharisees, the recipients of of Jesus' greatest objections would have also passed most of these theology tests. They would have had most of the right answers. Certainly better than most of the answers I would probably be able to give. And yet he calls them blind guides leading the blind straight into hell. Say, Philip, are you saying that theology is not important? We haven't gotten to know each other very well if you think that I think theology is not important. It's massively important. Right doctrine is incredibly important. But right doctrine, independent of heart transformation, is just knowledge on paper. And friends, there's not an entrance exam into the kingdom of God. There's not. It's not like a test. It's not like a pass-fail. Entrance into the kingdom of God is heart transplant. The heart of stone being removed and replaced by a heart of flesh. Faith and trust in the work of Jesus Christ. 
Friend, I guarantee you that the thief on the cross that Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise, would not have passed the entrance exam that the demoniac had and that the Pharisees would have had. Would not have passed. He was a criminal who hated the things of God. And then he met the living Christ and he acknowledged Jesus for who he was. And by mercy of God, begged him to show him that same mercy. Please allow me to be with you today. A simple act of repentant faith. And friend, this morning, I think I would be remiss if I didn't declare to you with the greatest simplicity that I possibly can that the gospel is not hard business. It's not hard at all. It's remarkably simple in its childlike expression to all of us. Why? Because the shepherd loves his sheep and sheep are really dumb animals. And as much as we think that we like to gather up great information about our shepherd, at the end of it, we're still dumb sheep. And so God in his compassionate kindness as a shepherd who loves us and knows that we are wayward animals that left to ourselves would fall off every cliff and go down every hole and get eaten by every wild beast says to us in the simplest of terms, all that is required of you is an acknowledgement that you are a sinner. And that God has sent the Lord Jesus Christ into the world as a sacrifice for sin. And if you'll repent of your sin and believe in the work that Jesus has made on behalf of you for him, for your sin. Scripture says you call out on the name of the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Remarkably simple. There's nothing complicated about it. Yeah, but Philip, what about, what about, what about, what about, if you will acknowledge that you are a sinner. Here's the problem with the demon. He didn't want to acknowledge he was a sinner. Here's the problem with the Pharisee. They didn't want to acknowledge they were a sinner. Here's the problem with the Roman cohorts that Paul encountered in his mission. Paul, you nearly convinced me to be a Christian, but what did he not want to do? He didn't want to acknowledge that he was a sinner. What was the problem with Herod? He didn't want to acknowledge he was a sinner. What was the problem with Pontius Pilate? He didn't want to acknowledge he was a sinner. What was the problem between Jacob and Esau? Yeah, we've got the little background. God pulls the veil back and shows us the sovereign, eternal work that God's doing in both of their lives for purposes greater than ourselves. But humanly speaking, from the human perspective, what was the problem with Esau and Jacob? Jacob eventually acknowledged that he was a wretched sinner. Esau did not. What was the problem between the Jewish nation that left Egypt and the Pharaoh that oppressed them in Egypt? Pharaoh did not want to acknowledge that he was a sinner. Who is Jehovah and why do I have need of him? That's pride. You don't want to acknowledge that you're a sinner. Friends, what is what does it take for me to get into the kingdom of God? Empty, dirty hands that reach out to God and say, All I've got is my sin. And I trust and believe that Jesus can make my hands clean. This is why the psalmist cries out. David cries out in the Old Testament. Give us 
clean hand. I can't clean them. My, my garments are filthy. My mind is filthy. My body is filthy. My hands are filthy and I live in filth. And no amount of self-wiping will make the filth go away. I throw my hands up to heavens and say, God, give me clean hands. And Jesus washes us clean and puts us on robes of his righteousness. And he ushers us into his presence and he sits us down at his table and he gives us all of the magnificent benefits of being clean children of the most high God. And all that's all that's required of us is to acknowledge that we have dirty hands. Friend, it will do you no good to stand before God one day with all of the right answers, but with the heart of a demon. It'll do you no good. But do you no good to stand before God one day with all of the right answers and the proud heart of a Pharisee thinking that you did not need to be transformed? Do you no good? It will do you no good. As was the case at the end of the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 7. But Lord, Lord, did we not? And what is Jesus' response to them? They, they, they had a lot of good theology. Really good theology those people had in Matthew chapter 7. A lot of good works that they did for the Lord. And what is Jesus' response? And that day I will say to them, depart from me, you who do what? Work lawlessness. That means they did not acknowledge that they were sinners. Depart from me. Friends, the gospel is a lot of things. The gospel is a lot of things. And the gospel does a lot of things. But at its core, the gospel is this. And if this is absent, it ceases to be the gospel. The gospel is this. Christ Jesus has come into the world to save sinners. And any presentation of the gospel that eliminates the sinful aspect of the human person ceases to be the gospel. And friend, until we constantly and regularly acknowledge before a holy God our unholy state, we will not live in the gospel. We'll be like the demon. Wondering if Jesus has come to torment us before the time. Because the only hope that we have of encountering Jesus apart from repentance of sin. Is that he'll delay in our just judgment. It's the only hope we've got. If we've not been broken over our sin. Friend, even the demons tremble. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for texts like these that should cause us to pause long enough and ask the question, upon what are we hoping? Are we hoping in superior knowledge? Are we hoping in superior insight? Are we hoping in superior attendance? Are we hoping in superior good works? Are we hoping in superior self-effort? Are we hoping in superior lineage and genealogy? What are we hoping in? Or Father, 
Are we hoping in a superior work of Jesus? A grace that is greater than all of our sin. Are we hoping that we might find something worthwhile in ourselves? Or are we hoping that the only worthy thing is Christ Jesus, our Lord? Father, let our affection and attention and direction and focus be upon the resurrected Christ and nothing else. For Father, in his presence, even the demons tremble. May our hearts be moved the same way, yet savingly so, as we are broken over our sin. And we ask it in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.